You're listening to ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. Here's your host, Dr. Stephen Edelman, founder and director of Taking Control of Your Diabetes, clinical professor of medicine, Division of Endocrinology and Metabolism, University of California, San Diego, and San Diego Veterans Administration Healthcare System. What is the impact of race and ethnicity on the efficacy and safety of commonly used insulin regimens in type 2 diabetes? Joining us to discuss the relationship of insulin regimens to race and ethnicity is Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Jaime Davidson. Dr. Davidson, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you, Dr. Edmund. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Jaime, uh, thanks for joining the show. Um, let's talk about uh, a question in general terms. You know, what is the issue with ethnicity and race when it comes to just the prevalence of type 2 diabetes? Well, as, as you know, the prevalence of type 2 diabetes is much higher in African Americans, is much higher in Latino, Hispanics, and it's also much higher in Asian Americans. And, you know, one of the reasons that the study was done is, number one, to see if they're participating, and number two, to see if there are any differences. Now, I was pretty surprised when I saw some of the outline for today's show that, um, you know, what are some of the differences when it comes to race and ethnicity relative to insulin therapies? Most of the listeners are saying insulin regimen is an insulin regimen, uh, but I think you're about to tell us some really interesting things that may help us treat our patients uh, of different backgrounds. Absolutely. Actually, I was expecting when we started doing the data mining for this article to, to tell the world that all of us are the same and we don't need to worry and we're doing things very well. But, you know, for the audience, I wanted to know that these studies are actually research studies. That means patients that, that enter clinical trials. And the difference is that these patients are interested in their health care and therefore they enter clinical trials. And even with that, you know, what we find out is not too overwhelmingly good. Well, just for our listeners, um, the article that you're referring to that you worked on, uh, the title of it is the title of the show, What is the Impact of Race and Ethnicity on the Efficacy and Safety of Commonly Used Insulin Regimen in Type 2 Diabetes? Well, tell us a little bit more about this study. What were some of the treatment regimens used uh, in terms of the different insulins? Well, we use, uh, you know, premix, and we use MPH, and we use uh, basal insulins. And, you know, the first thing, Steve, is that we were unable to get enough African-American data to actually look at their data. Then my first recommendation to the audience is whenever they see an ad, and, and for diabetes studies, please send your African-American patients because if we do not, we will never know if drug A or B works better or works worse in this population. Then, you know, that's the first message. You know, we didn't have enough African-American patients to see if insulin worked differently. But I will tell you that in Latino Hispanics, the biggest problem is you know, they enter the clinical trials with a very high A1C. Higher than the, uh, the other ethnic groups. Higher than the Caucasians and higher than the Asian Americans. 
you know, and that is higher almost by 1% A1C. Maybe you can tell our listeners a little bit more about the patient populations uh, you studied. Well, you know, it's like any other pa- uh, group of patients with type 2 diabetes. The age is uh, in the mid-50s to low-60s. The BMI is in the high-20s, low-30s. You know, uh, the A1C in the Hispanics always 1% higher. And, you know, like I said to you before, you know, one of the lessons is we start insulin too late. You know, we cannot wait until the A1C is, is above eight and a half with two agents or at that level to start a third agent because we know a third agent will never go bring the A1C from eight and a half to six and a half or even to seven. What were the entrance A1Cs in general, Jaime? Well, in, you know, I have several studies, but either above eight and a half or in some of my studies, you know, uh, even above 10 for, for, the, for the Hispanics. Wow. So that is way too high. What about the BMI? Um, was there any difference there compared to the typical population that would uh, volunteer for a clinical study? Yes, actually, like I say, you know, for the Caucasians, close to 30. For the Hispanics, around 20. 829 and for the Asians about 26 and as you know Asians are known to have a lower BMI even if they have insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes then for for an Asian you know a BMI of 24 is already obese and 26 is is uh, a lot higher than we usually see and we know that um, the Asians have a lot of intra-abdominal fat but they don't have the large abdominal panis that a typical Caucasian would have. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Diabetes Discourse on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Stephen Edelman. I'm speaking with my very good friend and colleague, Dr. Jaime Davidson. We are discussing the relationship of insulin regimens to race and ethnicity. Well, were there there any um, surprises uh, in the outcomes of the studies that you looked at? Well... You know, the, the the thing is we don't get to the targets, you know, because we start with a very high A1C. And, and we need to remember, these are limited clinical trials. There are, you know, usually either uh, 24, 26 weeks, in the most is 52 weeks. Then, you know, in, in real clinical practice, you know, we can do a lot better, you know, with the patients if we, if we really want to. Then it is essential... Number one, to start insulin on a timely basis. If there are two agents and they are, you know, higher than seven and a half, maybe we can start a regimen of prandial insulin. If the fasting glucose is high, then maybe we can start a basal insulin. But at the end of the day, you know, they will need either prandial and basal, you know, and in, in, in our study, the premixes work well as well. And there are studies like the one, two, three, uh, you know, that shows that we can get most of the patients to target if we do the trials well. Now, Jaime, the ADA and uh, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, which you are very closely involved with, actually both, they have their guidelines for therapy. Can you comment on these guidelines as it relates to different ethnic groups? Well, I, I think as far as the guidelines is concerned, you know, I think it's clear that if you treat patients early, 
you know, and we have some some data uh, from England, and we have some data from California. When when you treat, you know, Caucasians and you treat uh, Latinos, and you compare, you know, they can get to the same targets, uh, you know, and and they can get the same benefits. And the 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 reason that we differ on the targets is is only semantics, you know, it's seven or six and a half. You know, if I will have everybody below seven in the U.S., you know, I will be so happy, and you will be so happy, you know. And the biggest problem now came with the study accord, you know. But again, you know, when you have a newly diagnosed patient and you're really treating them well, you know, the legacy effect of good treatment, both seen in the U.K. PDS and in type 1 diabetes in this DCCT, is worth every effort. You know, when we treat them early on, they benefit for the rest of their lives. If we start treating them well after they have the first MI or the first stroke, then maybe different. Maybe at that stage, we don't need to be so aggressive. Yep, absolutely. Well, in closing, uh, what would you say about getting the siblings and family members involved, and how important is that? Well, what we need to do is, you know, every one of us in their offices, you know, should have uh, a little, you know, pamphlet, you know, telling them the importance of participating in clinical trials, telling them the importance of controlling diabetes early, and actually telling them the importance of if if I have diabetes and I'm 55 and I have three brothers that are 40 and 39, they should come and be checked for diabetes because chances are, you know, they have the same eating habits, the same exercise habits, and the same genes that, you know, predispose all of them for type 2 diabetes. What are you using in terms of laboratory assessment? No, we actually, we, we do a two-hour postprandial. You know, we believe uh, many people use a fasting glucose, but from everything I've seen, you know, if you really want to diagnose diabetes earlier, a two-hour postprandial or two-hour sports challenge, and if it's 200 or higher, and they have a family history and they have some symptoms, they have diabetes, if it's between 140 and 199, you know, it is a great opportunity for us to actually do preventive medicine. I think it all is in uh, education, motivation, uh, early treatment, and getting the whole family involved. I'd like to thank our guest, Professor of Internal Medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, Texas, Dr. Jaime Davidson. Dr. Davidson, thank you so much for spending time with us on Diabetes Discourse. Thank you, Steve. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Diabetes Discourse, sponsored by Novo Nordisk, a world leader in diabetes care. To learn more about diabetes and the role of GLP-1, visit novomedlink.com forward slash DIA. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show, or to download the segment, visit us at reachmd.com. In last week's class, we talked about how diabetes affects the whole person, and we left off with an important question. Are we looking at every part of diabetes? Uh, to help us answer this question, I've invited one of my colleagues as a guest speaker, Dr. Jackie Brennan, who has been practicing endocrinology for over 25 years. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here to discuss a key issue in diabetes, whether or not we're looking at the whole picture. 
As you know, sustained control of A1C is important, but we can't stop there. Weight, cardiovascular risk, and beta cell dysfunction are also part of the problem. Specifically, I'd like to talk about GLP-1 and how it impacts multiple systems affected by diabetes. Can anyone tell me more about it? Yes, Jamie, go ahead. GLP-1 is a natural hormone that helps regulate glucose metabolism, and the multiple actions of GLP-1 are critical to glucose control. Exactly. In a glucose-dependent manner, GLP-1 stimulates the beta cells in the pancreas to secrete insulin and inhibits the liver from releasing excessive glucose by reducing glucagon secretion from alpha cells. Anyone know what else it does? What about you, Sam? Yeah, doesn't it help control weight by slowing gastric emptying and inducing a feeling of satiety? Yes, and GLP-1 may also play a role in improving beta cell function, a key to slowing diabetes progression. But why is this so important? It's because at diagnosis, type 2 diabetes patients have already lost 50% of beta cell function. Well, isn't impaired GLP-1 physiology also part of the problem in diabetes? Yes, that's a great point. People with type 2 diabetes may have impaired GLP-1 activity and or impaired beta cell response to GLP-1. This could contribute to problems that develop over time. That's why the multiple actions of GLP-1 throughout the body are critical. GLP-1 regulates blood sugar in a glucose-dependent manner, may help control weight, and may improve beta cell function. Novo Nordisk is a world leader in diabetes care and is dedicated to ongoing research. To learn more about the latest treatment available from Novo Nordisk, please visit glp1analog.com.